Now these are two men who can talk. <laughs> Just a little format. I get to talk to them for a couple of minutes to get the conversation rolling. This is an interactive night. You're not going to just sit there all night and listen in. You're going to talk to each other for a while and you're going to send some questions in and we're going to ask them of it. But I get to start. So backstage, I listened in for a little bit when you were talking a little bit about anger. You each had a piece of it. When you talk about realities of, of our society, makes me angry, gotta make you really angry. And yet you're both deeply ingrained in your faith, not giving up. I wanna do you first. He kind of answered it at the end. Yeah. Why don't you give up? What is it so deep in you that's that faith? Yeah, um, I, I, for one, I think, um, Anger can be toxic or it can be productive. It can be constructive or it can be destructive. And, um, and I'm okay with constructive anger. Um, I didn't know that at first. So uh, why haven't I given up? Um, well, when you hear verses like consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds, it sounds like, you know, yeah, sure, it's simple. Consider it pure joy. Um, but I have three kids, and, um, and my wife, uh, after giving birth to the first one, it was clear and obvious that was painful. It was, it was really bad. <laughs> um, and, and so in seeing her give birth, and she's like, man, you know, I've heard women say, like, that was almost like dying. It was so bad. But she didn't quit. Um, what, what, what kind of sense would it make for her to lay on the table in mid-birth say, Doc, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Um, because she knew at the other end of that was the product of joy. And I think for me, not quitting is realizing um, that there is joy in knowing who my God is, There's, that he promises that, um, that, that a complete picture will be painted and that this is all for a greater good, for a greater narrative. And, and, and even for now, there's, there's good to come out of the here and now for wrestling through this. Um, so that's, for me, I think why I have continued to persevere. Have you doubted? What's have that? you doubted at times? Have I? Doubted. Doubted? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, you, how much time you got? <laughs> so that hardens you your faith, though. Absolutely. Just to get through it. Absolutely, yes. It, it, deepens, it deepens my walk. It deepens my faith. Um, to walk through those periods of doubt. And, uh, and everyone's different, but, um, but, but my doubt was severe, and uh, it, it absolutely strengthened my faith. Now, you're really hard, because you can talk theology better than anyone I've seen. So you can <laughs> get around. I mean, that's a, a really good argument. Deep, though, deep inside, you don't give up. Where's that faith? I feel bad, because Lecrae has quoted way more Bible than I have so far. So <laughs> <laughs> I have to drop some Bible passages in here. Um, <laughs> What, what, I would say, what I would say is that anger is just a part of the human experience, and all of the human experiences is wrapped up in God's work of salvation. It's so one of the things that's helpful to me is the fact that there's imprecatory psalms in, in the Bible, and these are psalms where God's like, the God's like, I want my enemy to die, and I want him to suffer. And you guys think, part of me say, well, maybe I'm being less Christian when I'm really angry about these things. I don't think that's the case. I think, I think the real danger comes when you stop articulating that anger, anger to God and it simply becomes the angry anger at the other person. 
And so I, I still cry out to God. I get so mad sometimes when I see what's happening to black people in this country. I have to talk to Jesus about it. And then I still go to work and I still speak about it. But God gives me a way to process the anger. And he gives me, and he gives me the cross to give me hope to, be, like, to go forward. And so I, the amount of times I have to say to myself, he is risen, it's, it's innumerable. And so I don't think that anybody is... Sorry, here's the Bible verse. Well, that's for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. <laughs> and, and the whole point is that we, we spiritualize that. To hunger and thirst for righteousness involves seeing the brokenness of the world and never getting tired of fighting for the world to be a different place. Okay. And the Bible says, folks, never lose that hunger. Say that again. Never I don't even know anymore. what I said. So. <laughs> you say it good. <laughs> uh, to, to what I was trying to say is that you should never lose that hunger for, for a more just and righteous society. And part of that hunger means a, a deep dissatisfaction with the way things are. And so a Christian is never satisfied. Never until Jesus returns. And part of that involves periodic expressions of anger that you lift up to Jesus in prayer. Okay, you ended too with the multiculturalism, you know, all that piece. But you know, the, the cliche is the most segregated place in America is Sunday morning at church. So what's going on here? I mean, if we're Christian and, and social justice part of it, theology is part of it, Bible is part of it, what is going wrong? I'm, I'm, I'm going to let Esau give you the, a long-winded answer because <laughs> he's got a doctor in front of his name. But I'm just simply put, uh, I mean, 60 years ago, we weren't allowed to go to church with each other. And so it's kind of like that is what's happened is, you know, segregation was mandated for Sunday morning. And now people want to say, hey, well, why don't you guys come to our church? It's, well, we, we weren't allowed to initially. Um, and then on top of that, I, I would also say this is my push is not a push for diversity for diversity's sake. My push is a push for, um, you know, for, for truth and for people to feel appreciated in the skin that they're in. And so diversity is not, you know, uh, me going to a Sunday service where they sing songs that I wouldn't sing and play instruments that I wouldn't play. Um, <laughs> that's not diversity. Um, diversity is when you sing songs I would sing and I sing songs you would sing, but that's real diversity, so. He got it. <laughs> I could be short. <laughs> no, we want it, we want okay. it. We want um, I think that once again, I don't, for my spiritual sanity, I don't center the American church when I think of Christianity. And so, I mean, ask, ask Uganda where they're having the various African tribes come together to worship whether or not the church is diverse. And so the church is by definition diverse. We're in every tribe, tongue, and nation across the world. We're, we're together. We're united in the body of Christ. Now, why this doesn't happen in America is the result of hundreds of years of history. And the question I always like to ask people, if you had to put a year on it, when systematic racism was no longer publicly acceptable to talk about, what would you say? I'm not talking about where to end it, because it exists, but when could, you, when could you stop being publicly racist because it could cost you a job? 85, 88, I mean, look at the yearbooks, mm. right? And so if this has been the case up until 10 years ago, now you can't be racist on your, well, I guess you can. When does it end, right? And so, um, <laughs> so, you're on our campus right now. Y'all invited me, and I already got my check, so it's okay. 
Um, so if, if, it, if it is still okay to be, to be publicly racist, then how can you create community? Community is rooted in truth-telling, and so until we tell the truth, we can't, be, we can't be a community together. But Christianity ought to be where people do come together and have the same language, the same faith, the same belief, and be able to get past that, but it really happens, right? I mean, yes. how do you guys deal with white church, white faithful people who, who are trying to you know, be really open, but don't really maybe really be open? I mean, really, how, how do you challenge them? How do you bridge them? How, how do you make community? Um, I, I can tell you what not to do. <laughs> um, and and what, I, what I spent too much time doing is, is trying to pull them all along. It's trying to convince them of all this history. It's trying to show them, look, the, the police was created to, you know, capture slaves. That's the history of why police was created in America. Like, I could go down the list and point out all these particular things and show you how Andrew Jackson wiped out the Native Americans. And I can do all of those particulars, um, but what do I gain except stress and turmoil when no one wants to hear? You know what I mean? So if you're listening, great. I'm gonna keep going, but I'm gonna do what I feel God has led me to do and go where I feel God has led me to go. And if you're willing to listen and hear, awesome, but I don't see it as my personal mission or ministry to convince um, you know, white people that racism is, exists in America, so. You wanna say add to that? I mean, I, I grew up in an all-black church, I'm an Anglican. The Anglican Church in, in, in North America is largely white, and there are people of goodwill in both. And the people of goodwill who are willing to open, are, who are open to learn, then I'm willing to invest my energy. For those who aren't, I have other stuff to do. I have, I have four kids, um, and so I really, I really have made it for my own sanity to kind of build a coalition of people: black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American who believe the gospel and who want to live for Jesus, and that's why I devote my energy. I don't think that you're ever gonna convince 100% of any group of people to do anything. And so if it's 20%, if it's 25%, if it's 30%, then that's my community, and I'll pray for the other 70%. But the people of the gospel ought to be part of that community. Yeah, that's I mean, part, part of being a Christian is you can't give up on people. So, like, by definition, if there's a white racist Christian who loves Jesus, we're like stuck in the body together. So I can't give up on them, but I can, I can at some point separate myself and not be subject myself to that abuse. And so I don't give up on anybody because I've known people who had profound racial bias who've been transformed. But at a certain point, I can say my ministry to you that is direct is coming to its end, and now it's intercession and Jesus will have to deal with you. Um, and so that's what I can do. And, and I just, I don't, not to belabor the point, but I, I just, it's, it would be really strange, it'd be really strange for, um, you know, an, a, a victim of abuse to take on the mission of, of convincing people they've been abused. It would be really just strange for a victim of abuse to have to wear the burden of trying to fix the relationship between the abuser. Or, it just doesn't, it, you, that's not like, when we say the word reconciliation, 
it typically means it typically means the people of color carry the burden of reaching across the bridge. And, and reconciliation is about someone who has wronged you reaching over and saying, I did this, how can I adjust? Or I benefit from wrongness and how can I fix that or, or step into that place? And so, um, and then it is on the person of, of the offended or the person who's a victim of, you know, whatever systemic injustices reign to be willing to forgive, to be willing to say, okay, well, I absolutely forgive you and let's move forward and let's figure out what else you know, we can do to, to, to press in. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanna make that part that Lecrae said. And I, I, was, I wasn't messing around when I said that African-American Christians have beef. And the gospel challenges black Christians or any Christians of color in particular to forgive. And that's like sometimes a hard word for people when you start learning the history of this country and you feel like I have all of this stuff that I want, I want payback. And I'm not saying there's no justice, no repar reparations. What I'm saying is that the gospel requires us to open our hearts to forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that we have to also open ourselves to abuse. And I think that the balance between being open to forgiveness and saving yourself spiritually from really abusive behaviors, the, the balance that Christians, struggle, Christians of color struggle to keep. Before we go to your conversations, right before we came on stage and had, came out to read, to do an amazing poem, you said, let's pray. And we got together in a circle and I wrote down, it was a powerful prayer, but you ended by saying, hope what some happens tonight is we help what's broken on this campus. You were very specific about this moment. And to so say a little something about that, particularly to our students. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, trauma is trauma, brokenness is brokenness. And whether it's related to racial injustice or, you know, family issues, the, the pain is real. And um, as, as Esau was saying, it's, it's representative of a fallen world, a broken world. And I do believe that um, God is a healer and God is a restorer, um, that he restores the years that the locusts have eaten, that he takes things that are broken and messed up and, and takes them and makes them beautiful. Um, and so I, I want that for um, the campus as a whole, but that the campus as a whole doesn't look healed and, and whole until individuals are healed and whole. And so that's what I want for the, the, the students here is for them to experience healing and wholeness. Um, there's, there may be bitterness, there may be all, there, there's a ton of issues out here because nobody out here is perfect, unless Jesus, you out there somewhere? So, um, and so for me, I, I just, I deeply empathize, I, you know, with, with all the different issues that are going on here, you know, people breaking down during finals weeks and, and having suicidal ideations to um, just feeling alone um, on this campus in so many different ways. I want healing and wholeness for everybody. And then we can start addressing the, the, the larger issues at, uh, that, 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 that plague us. You want to answer that, I want to affirm everything that Lecrae said about healing, but I want to say a brief word about a theology of history. I know that's tricky at a secular institution, but I'll just say one word about the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament as the history of Israel, everything is in there, the good and the bad. David's rape of Bathsheba, foreign, um, the oppression of the poor, Abraham selling off his wife. There is sin recounted in the history of Israel so that they might learn from those mistakes and not repeat them in the future. 
God didn't say, well, let's not think about the past in Israel. Let's just look for the, to the future. Right? He wrote in the Bible their mistakes. They will be forced to come to grips with it. And I would say that until UNC is willing to really have a come to grips with what's happened on this campus, there'll never be healing. So you have to be willing to tell the truth. You can't minimize it because we have so much emotional stake in the history of an institution or a place. Because you say, if this institution is evil, what does that say about me and am I complicit in it? Versus the Bible. I know this is in the Christian institution. But the Bible says it is precisely because the people of Israel are complicit in sin that they can repent and live differently. And that relates to the Christian because Paul says in Corinthians, here's some Bible. He says, these things are written for our instruction so that we might do better. And so I would say for the people on this campus who, who are followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be afraid of history. We need to embrace that history, repent of it, and it's only then that you can begin to move forward. All right, now you have lots to talk about. They've challenged you both personally and theologically and every other way. Start talking, you've got five minutes, and then we come back for some more questions. Are you all ready? I, I would love to hear some of your conversations, but we'll have that afterwards. So the first question up, is to just put you in a little lighthearted mood. Lecrae, you get the first one. What shoes are you wearing? <laughs> um, some Italian brand that my friend got for me. <laughs> okay, Isa. This is the difference between a professor budget and a rapper budget. <laughs> These are Clarks, and they were like, buy one, get one half off. I got, I got, a, black, I got a black pair that are exactly the same, so if y'all invite me back, I'll have the black ones on. Okay, but you've got your own question here. Esau, can you rap a LaCrae No bars. Come on, you don't know no, any No bars, no okay. bars. Okay. I remember I used to listen to Lecrae and I thought, well, like, I love Jesus too and let me see, but it just didn't happen. <laughs> like, I kept trying, have you ever seen the place where they, like, when, like the, the meme where the kid's trying to like jump rope and he jumps in and he falls? That's me trying to catch the beat. I just goes in. <laughs> okay, I don't know which one of you can do this. You can look at each other and decide which one wants to start this. What was the most racist moment you had to deal with? And how'd you overcome it? What day of the week is it? <laughs> Can we pass on that one? We'll pass. I don't think there's one moment. Yeah. It would be a long story. Um, it's just it's part of your life, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Would, I, would, yeah, I would say, like, it's... Um, what would I say? I mean, when, I mean, I can tell you the first time I became conscious of race is when I was in, like, first, second grade, and I was sick, and I was trying to call my mom on the phone. Um, and I kept calling the wrong number, because um, I was trying to get her to come pick me up from school. And the person on the other line like called me the N-word and said, stop calling. This is Alabama, don't be surprised. Um, and so I remember thinking, like, how could he know it in my voice in like first grade? Like, they already see me and they already hate me. I remember thinking that, like, how you know I was black? I now know that you can tell black people's voices, but in first grade, it shocked me that he could, like, discern my voice and get racist. You don't have a white man voice? I know it's gone. See, I got a, I, you got a code switch on him okay. sometimes. 
Hey, you on the phone, you gotta put your, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Hello, yes, this is, uh, Mr. <laughs> Hated for no reason. Yeah, I mean that's I, like you don't want to hear you don't want to hear me talk about Alabama. God bless it. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> okay, this is somebody asking from uh, an evangelical, and he's saying the church in America, the evangelical church, is really turning a blind eye, eye to racism. How can it be changed? How can the folks out here help change it? Well, first of all, they're in the room. So I think um, part of it is, is, is putting yourself, is doing the work, putting yourself in places and spaces and not relying on someone else to do the heavy lifting for you. A lot of times people say stuff, yeah, say stuff and they, they say, well, what can I do or where can I, and I'm, and, and I'm saying you have the same internet that I have and the, the same libraries that I have and you can read the same history books that I've had to read in order to understand what's going on. So you can watch the same news and read the same blogs and so on and so forth that will impress upon you where you need to step in and what you need to do specifically. A lot of times people just want a, a quick you know, pill they can take to help end racism and it doesn't work like that, so. What can they do? Oh, I gotta answer everyone, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I would say um, one of the tricky parts is, and I know this is a question and answer thing, but like, it can't be black people's job to like, articulate how to deconstruct white supremacy. It just can't be. Um, and so when I say that, it's that like, I had to go on my own journey of discovery where I found the resources and I began to engage in the ways that God has gifted me. And so I would say is that we have to like, I can't give you a syllabus, and I can't give you a 10-point plan because I got other stuff to do. And so what I want people to say is they need to be committed to becoming educated. It's like, I'm a, I'm a New Testament scholar. I don't, I'm not a sociologist. And so they want, sometimes there's a requirement for black people to be omnicompetent. We need to be able to diagnose and, like, give you the cure at the same time. I can just say this is what's wrong. I'm, but I'm not an economist. I can't do all of those things. So I would say we need the whole church to really be equipped. But I will give one piece of advice, and this is one thing I'll say that is practical. Um, there's a lot of places that I won't go. The people who came to this room are at least open to the conversation. But every largely white family that I know has racists in it. And you, deal, you see them at, at Christmas and at Thanksgiving and are in neighborhoods that they would never invite me to. And the question is, I say to my white friends, are you willing to pay the cost in your own family or in your church? You're willing to lose members for the sake of no financial benefit. Because we may never come to your church, but you can still make your church less racist. And some people make the decision, they make the decision that it's not worth that cost, that the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So I'll just pull back and periodically feel guilty and ask about that person what to do. That's what I'm saying, that's not, that's not how you do it. It has to be a deep conviction that's unchanging that you engage in your space. Listen to that a second. Uh, apart from Sunday mornings, what does pursuing racial justice imply in the way that we live our lives, the neighborhoods we live in, the schools we send our children to? My text messages when I get out of here will be from my black friends and from my white friends. And 
maybe a couple of Asian and Latino friends. I don't have as many. And so it's really a matter of being intentional about building um, diverse spaces, even if it's slower and not as easy. And so, and that involves being sensitive because you can't, if there's five black people in the city, they can't be friends with all 100,000 white people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's sensitive about pursuing relationships but not harassing people of color so that it is, it is all just guilt. And so like, there's just, this stuff is complicated and we have to be willing to do the complicated long work and make mistakes and have to be okay with the black person saying, you know what, we're not gonna kick it but you know, I'm glad that you care about it. And then finding someone else and building relationships that are organic. One of the things I've seen though, sometimes this is sort of a struck, I, I can't resist asking it. You know, it used to be that, um, you know, white flight or something, black people move into the neighborhood, uh, I'm okay, they're moving. Now, lots of white kids are moving into black neighborhoods and blacks are being forced out of gentrification. So, you know, best intentions might be there, but there are dynamics. So people making individual decisions I would say probably 90% of the people in this audience don't want to live with people just like them. They want to have a more diverse experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Disagree I, I, with me. I, I, I would just say. I, I'll just say me. I don't want to live with all white people all the time. And we appreciate that. Especially since <laughs> my daughter. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of times people are so concerned about their individual desires, they don't even realize how it it is, it's complicit to an overall greater danger or harm to a people group, right? There's, now, there is some that's intentional. There's absolutely intentionality in some aspects of gentrification, and that's another long story where rich people need poor people because then the property value is not cheap. Um, so, uh, but, but outside of that, I think it takes you saying, let me, let me stop doing what's comfortable to realize you know, what's going on in, in other uh, spheres. So for instance, um, I remember, my, like I was saying before, my partner, Ben, is, is a white guy, grew up in the suburbs, went to private school, and when we were starting this label, um, we were looking for an operations person slash accountant, and his, his knee-jerk reaction was to call a friend. And, and, I, and I said, but that's gonna make this office not diverse because you're just thinking, oh, I know someone who's a good accountant, but that person you know is a white person. And you're just knee-jerk trying to fulfill a role and a desire, but you're not thinking like, oh, that's why my whole circle looks like me, because I'm just doing what's comfortable and I'm not even considering. Oh, I was just moving to this neighborhood because the price was cheap. I didn't even think about how it may affect you know, other people and, and so on and so forth. So I think it, it, it takes more stopping to look at the, how your decisions affect a whole ecosystem. Okay. I'm gonna, this is gonna be just a quick one because we're gonna come to end. A couple of folks, both of you mentioned books about black theology. Can you give a couple of recommendations? In 2022, I have a book coming out. Yes! <laughs> I would say that um, black church theology in its ecclesial form is rarely in print. And if you want to en encounter um, the heart of the black church, you actually have to go to a black church. 
and you have to listen to the prayers and the hymns and the songs that have formed the people. Um, that's what I recommend people to do. Um, they're like most, yeah, so that's what I would say. As far as books that people can read, I mean, Augustine was black, so you can read Augustine if you want to. Um, it's true. I've read a lot of him. Um, so I would say that learning the history, the, the whole of the history of early Christianity, and being exposed to, to Christians of color um, across the spectrum would be important. But I don't know if there's like one book. I mean, it's easy to say like, you know, a certain theologian, but I just think that it's for a variety of reasons that black ecclesial theology is hard to find in print. I, I would say that across, the, across most color lines that it's gonna be hard to find print um, because you know, we live in America, which was founded by uh, Europeans, and so you're gonna get mostly European authors and thinkers on the shelves. Um, and there were no publishing deals given out <laughs> until maybe 50 years ago for people of color um, in the country. So there's just a lack of that. But, but there's, there's plenty of people you can, can meet and talk to. And like he said, visit. Like, it's, it, it, the layers are so deep. Even, even us calling it black church or anything like that, like there's, an, there's evidence of privilege just in that, that we're calling something black as juxtaposed to what? Right, that we eat Chinese food as juxtaposed to what? There's no white food, right? Um, and so the, they're just the, the blinders that just, oh, you, there is a such thing as whiteness. There is white culture. You may call it American, but, it's, but to other ethnicities and cultures, it's white. And so when you say, hey, baseball's an American sport. No, it's a white sport. <laughs> and that's just, looking at it through those particular lenses and trying to develop some relationships with people of color so that you can enter into those worlds just on a relational level, not, on, not even on a, let me pick your brain, just be friends and, and, and spend time. My publisher is gonna get mad at me unless I tell you two of the titles. 2021 is the New Testament and the hopes of black folks. Um, that's on the relevance of the New Testament to the concerns of black Christians. Um, 2022, is called the New Testament in Color, and it's a multi-ethnic commentary on the New Testament that brings together black, Asian, Latino, um, and uh, everybody um, <laughs> uh, to talk about, uh, the uh, to do a New Testament commentary that actually centers um, people of color, but it actually includes white authors too, they're just not in charge. And so um, that's something, multi-ethnic include white people, um, and so that's coming out in 2022. And so my, my publisher will be happy that I told you that these two books are coming out by, by IVP. So you can, you can tweet them and tell them the idea of my job. Maybe they'll give me some money. We'll get very tested. <laughs> get you a book night, right? A book club. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're coming to the end and each of you are gonna close um, with two minutes, but last thoughts. Why do you personally, personally follow and place your trust in Jesus Christ? Um, man, I, you know, it, it's, it's miraculous for a person to believe that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die and then resurrected. And 
that resurrection provides hope and, um, and meaning. Um, that's a miracle. So I don't, you know, an apologist could sit here all day and, and, and wax eloquent about theologically why you should believe in Jesus. I would say this, you woke up this morning, you believe you're here for a reason, you believe you have purpose. If you didn't, you wouldn't have brushed your teeth, you wouldn't have fed yourself. So you do think you're, you have purpose. If you're going to act like you have purpose, you have to wonder where does my purpose then come from? Does it just come from in here? And if, and if so, how can you define that in and of yourself? If that's the case, then I can say my purpose is to kill everybody in this room. And that should be okay because we all define our own purpose, but it's not okay. Um, and so if I have purpose and worth, then I must, it, it must have been given to me by uh, something outside of myself and that is God. Now, if I believe in God, who is this God? And that's where I landed, is I need to investigate who this God is. And every other religion I studied showed me that I had to pull myself up to this God. I had to earn his love. I had to do some things on the scales must outweigh the other. And Jesus is the only one that said, no, I'm going to reach down. You don't pull yourself up. Wow. And so that's why I trust him. I wish, I wish that I had um, a sophisticated argument, that, um, but I don't. Um, Jesus has loved me my whole life. And when I didn't have any degrees, and I didn't have any money, and UNC wouldn't invite me to do anything, <laughs> when y'all weren't here, this is real, when it was just me and my three sisters and brothers and my mom in that house, and I prayed to Jesus, he answered my prayers. And he's known me my whole life through, and he's never mistreated me. And so now that I'm an adult and I have these resources and this money, there's nothing that anyone has offered me that has come close to what Jesus has done for me with the entirety of my life. And so it's Jesus and his goodness that's the reason why I'm a Christian, and I believe that he's not dead. So. He dropped the mic on me. I rolled the mic I'd say it was a drop the mic kind of night. I was very honored to be asked to do this with you. I'm more honored to have been with the two of you. You're really um, powerful speakers that I think uh, can connect everyone. But I want to end with just the words uh, from Hannah's that she did in her opening poem. Um, God, teach us to see and to know we are seen. Thank you very much, everyone, for being here. And thank you to, to Star.